From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. As COVID-19 has been upending lives around the world, many people wonder what could have been different? How are we doing now? And what is next? As we turn to researchers in the field for guidance, information continues to change as the weeks and months go by. Now, we speak with Dr. Yonatan Grad of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health to discuss his essential work on infectious disease and COVID-19 research throughout this year. So, Dr. Grad, thank you uh, for joining us and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So, you're an infectious disease epidemiologist and we're in the middle of the worst pandemic in 100 years. So, could you take us back to earlier this year and what your life was like when the virus started spreading around the world? Um, You know, what your, you know, you study this kind of stuff. So, what was the I don't know. What were you thinking in January, February, when the news started really breaking about this? Uh, So um, I think as with many people, I was um, following closely the reports coming out of China uh, about the new virus, about its uh, connection to the market. And then um, as it became increasingly clear that it was um, uh, a notable outbreak um, uh, and was um, causing severe outcomes. It, of course, many of us started focusing more and more on it, uh, knowing that that the the timing in January was uh, coincident with a time when many people travel in China. That Wuhan is a major travel hub uh, raised a lot of concerns that this is something that we would start seeing uh, spread both around China and then globally. Uh, when we first started seeing cases appear in other in other countries or in other regions uh, of, of China and the world, uh, it seemed like we were um, at further risk when there was clear indication of human-to-human transmission. As you might remember, there was a question early on. Uh, it became, again, uh, increasingly obvious that we were facing something that would, would spread around the world. And the question was whether... Um, the features were going to be like with the SARS uh, epidemic back in um, the early 2000s when public health efforts were sufficient to uh, keep it under control um, and eventually eradicate it, or whether this was going to be like um, influenza pandemics where we really see uh, um, global spread uh, that is unchecked. There are some basic... Um, questions of uh, from from an epidemiology perspective, what's its basic reproductive number? This is uh, the R naught that became quite famous uh, and was much discussed. Um, you know, so so how contagious is it? Is really the question. Um, what's the what's the serial interval? Um, so uh, another sense of how quickly does it spread? Um, how severe uh, um, is the infection? What's the um, case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate. Again, these are some 
um, characteristics of uh, infectious diseases that are, are critical to know, but hard to know early on in pandemics. When we first started seeing it spread around, it became pretty clear to me we were going to have an issue here as well. There's no reason why uh, the U.S. would be insulated from this. We were focused on um, trying to understand uh, the pattern of spread and the, what kinds of interventions would be successful in trying to, to slow its spread. Uh, quarantine versus um, you know, uh, symptom monitoring, isolation, various features of the disease that would inform those kinds of protocols. We started in the uh, Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics um, having regular meetings to discuss the, the findings on SARS-CoV-2 and, and COVID-19, trying to get an understanding of what was happening in China, what the early literature showed, uh, and what the implications are. You mentioned the SARS outbreak in 2000, and that was eradicated because of <coughs> strict public health measures, but also the nature of that virus is very different. Right, so one of the key differences uh, had to do with when are people contagious? So with the first SARS outbreak, it really seems that infectiousness coincided with symptoms. Whereas with this one, people are uh, infectious even before they develop symptoms. So there is a pre-symptomatic stage in which people are uh, able to spread the virus. And that makes uh, infection control uh, much, much more difficult. And it took a while to figure that out. So there was a time when that, the virus was just kind of spreading unchecked and people didn't know. And how long did it take for sort of the public health and medical community to figure that out? It was, it was pretty clear there was asymptomatic disease, even with the spread in Wuhan. Um, but the question was how, how much? Uh, and, and then there, this idea of pre-symptomatic spread, that people would be infectious and then go on to develop symptoms. Um, and there was some early work in February that really helped to, to lay that out. There's a, um, another paper in uh, science from uh, Jeff uh, Shaman and, and some of his colleagues that uh, I think uh, spelled it out pretty clearly um, uh, that I think was first posted back in February. Um, so there were indications even then uh, that this was um, going to be a, a much more difficult struggle from a public health perspective. Mm. Um, and so you've, you know, you've been looking at this a lot. It's, uh, we're talking, it's August 14th now. Um, and so since February, March, you've been studying this and um, you've also been interviewed a lot. I've watched a lot of your interviews and um, you were also on Anderson Cooper, AC360 on CNN. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what it's like being that in demand um, all of a sudden and being interviewed on such a high-profile show like Anderson Cooper. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny. For, for a while there, uh, my inbox was, and it's still quite, uh, um, quite busy, although um, less busy for me now. I know some of my colleagues like uh, Michael Minna continue to be totally overwhelmed. Uh, you know, he's, he's recently been championing um, the, the uh, low-cost rapid turnarounds uh, low sensitivity testing and, and doing so in such a high profile way that I'm sure he is. <laughs> uh, it's hard to imagine just how busy he must be. So, so I think all of us uh, um, kind of go in cycles, but um, at the time things were so busy. Uh, um, I got in, it was getting email requests. All of us were getting bombarded and uh, we 
And by, by all of you, you mean everybody at the Center for Communicable, Di sorry, Communicable Disease Dynamics. Yeah, there, were, there are a number of us who have been active uh, um, from, from early on at Vocal. So um, the center is led by Mark Lipsich, who's really become one of the most prominent voices uh, uh, and most trusted voices, I'd say. He's both um, one of the leading lights in the world of infectious disease epidemiology, uh, but also he is just super smart, a really lovely guy, and uh, really, I think, clear-headed and um, a great uh, uh, science communicator. So he's, he's kind of been championing this, this effort and, and uh, working with a variety of different sectors and many others. But um, at the time, things were so hectic and there were so many emails flying back and forth that I didn't pay attention to ones where I didn't know people sending me emails often. And I got an email from AC360 and I had no idea what that was. I don't watch television. <laughs> television. I had no idea what it was. And I ended up uh, getting in touch with uh, one of the administrators in my department who got in touch with me and, and uh, and eventually I connected with him. I, I had never, I have to admit, never watched Anderson Cooper. Other, okay. I, I think I knew who he was because of him playing himself in movies like The Avengers or something or <laughs> to, to discuss uh, uh, world events and, and uh, threats to, 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 um, to the globe. And it's like, ah, you know, maybe it's, <laughs> it's fitting. Um, it's, it, it's been a learning process, uh, trying to move from the usual professorial mode of pontificating uh, and uh, um, having a platform, you know, at most of my science delivery is at a podium uh, where I give a seminar or give some kind of lecture. Um, but this is a very different mode of communication where you want to come in with your three main points and um, learn how to uh, short burst. So uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's been it's been an education. Uh, yeah, talk more about that. I mean, when you when you're giving a seminar at a podium, you have the luxury of time, and you can kind of uh, elaborate, and you can get into nuance, and you have an audience responding to you and stuff like that. But when you're sitting at your desk in a remote interview with Anderson Cooper, that maybe only lasts two and a half minutes or something. Um, you don't have that time, and I think there's the potential to be misunderstood if you're not careful. So, what do you? How did you make that adjustment? Yeah, it's a little bit weird to be told look at the green dot, right, uh, and not focus on the person on your screen, right, so that you can actually appear to be looking at. Uh, you know, at the viewer. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that, that was one little adjustment, but the others really have to do with identifying the points you want to make, um, and figuring out how to make them succinctly. Sometimes, uh, I would ask for at least a, a general sense of what the questions would be beforehand, uh, and then think about what kinds of, uh, short, um, accurate, uh, and informative answers I could, uh, provide with the understanding that this is not a discursive mode of interview, but uh, one intended to briefly communicate key points. And so you've been doing a lot of communication through papers and through articles. Um, and in March, you published a paper about social distancing and looking at some models saying that um, depending on how well we do with controlling the virus, we'd have to continue some form of social distancing 
kind of on and off until 2022. Um, and it's now August and we've seen different places reopening and infections um, resurging in some of those places. So could you tell us sort of where are we now in that, in that scheme and what that looks like? Yeah, so, so the, the framework um, that undergirds that projection um, is, is based on the idea that pandemics uh, either end because you can eradicate the virus, which is what we saw with SARS um, in, back in the early 2000s, uh, or because enough people have been infected that we've achieved herd immunity and we won't see continued um, epidemic spread of the virus. So, you know, thinking back to the early days of the virus, we saw everywhere these uh, graphs that show these epidemic curves. Uh, and we talked about, um, uh, you know, that, that our goal is to crush the curve or, you know, all of the, the language around trying to limit the spread uh, with the hope that by doing so we would reduce the pressure on hospitals and the healthcare infrastructure generally. And the notion there of these curves is that you will see the virus spread, people get infected, and then uh, eventually um, infections would subside as enough of the population is immune. With that as, a, as, as the framework, we could then ask, okay, if we use different types of mitigation efforts, social distancing, for example, can we slow the spread and uh, um, knowing that we wouldn't be able to maintain the community quarantine, these lockdowns uh, for a sustained period. Um, you know, if we were to do it for uh, one time and then, you know, as long as there are enough susceptible people in a population, we'd see virus surge again uh, and then we'd have to implement the same kinds of social distancing interventions. What would it look like if we were to have to do this repeatedly? And the notion that we articulated in that paper was that if we end up having these cycles or these intermittent social distancing efforts, uh, you know, how long would it take until we hit herd immunity so that we wouldn't have to do this? Uh, um, and this again was in the absence of uh, other types of interventions uh, uh, and thinking about how, how do we adjust our capacity of um, intensive care units and, and so on. So it really is just a uh, just one view of, of uh, what might happen um, uh, given tools at our disposal. And that's what led to the uh, uh, somewhat notorious 2022 uh, uh, prediction or, or projection. What, what we've learned, um, in fact, what we knew then, but really what has become even clearer, and I think for a policy perspective is, is quite important, is that the experience of the pandemic is really hyperlocal. Uh, and that it's, you know, the, the, the experience in each community is distinct and it's really shaped by the decisions made by those communities and jurisdictions. We can see that um, globally, uh, New Zealand uh, now uh, um, somewhat famously, uh, and aided perhaps by it being an island, was able to control community spread through aggressive measures very early on uh, for a long time. We went over 100 days without evidence of community spread, a combination of making sure that every visitor uh, went through quarantine testing um, and doing aggressive contact tracing and quarantine for, uh, for, for contacts. Um, so, you know, that, that 
was one example. And then in other examples, we have you know, what we've seen um, in Northern Italy where uh, the uh, pandemic raged for a while until they had, uh, again, very aggressive uh, community lockdown for some period of time. Similar Wuhan and China, where they were able to institute both travel restrictions and lockdowns and eventually able to, to stop them once they had halted community spread. But there are other places, uh, like what we've seen in Florida and Texas, for example, where um, uh, the governors decided not to, uh, um, to implement social distancing efforts, at least up front. Uh, and so we saw what you might expect to see, which is the widespread um, uh, uh, virus. And, and so it really depends on um, each jurisdiction, each municipality, each, each hyper-local area's response to the virus, what efforts can these places put in place to slow its spread? Um, and where they have been successful in slowing spread, uh, how do you, or, or even eliminating community transmission, how do, you, how do you proceed? Well, you have to maintain the vigilance uh, um, uh, so that you know, the huge population that remains susceptible to infection does not see a surge in infection. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a different story uh, in uh, all around the world, community by community. The main kind of continuing thread here is the simple math of epidemics, which is that as long as there are enough susceptible individuals to sustain spread of the virus and opportunity for the virus to spread among those individuals, it will do so. Yeah, and it was interesting when talking about different places in the world and how local it is. You know, you mentioned countries like China and New Zealand and cities, Wuhan and region like Northern Italy, but also, but when we get to the United States, it's really state by state, we've seen the response varying. And we saw that from the beginning, there was never a concerted federal effort to to try and do stuff like New Zealand did or like China did or South Korea where um, you track and trace everybody that comes in, you test and quarantine, you know, force, there was no forced quarantine or anything. So I don't know what the question is there, but. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. I want to just add, um, I, I should have included it before, but the, 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 I haven't mentioned vaccine, but vaccine is really, you know, if, if you choose to crush the curve and maintain your population as being susceptible, you're basically choosing a path that requires that we develop uh, an effective vaccine, right? Because otherwise your population's gonna remain susceptible um, to this virus circulating around the world, right? So um, it really, uh, that path is, is one uh, that in some ways is hopeful that science will be able to uh, come up with an effective answer to then once a vaccine is available, you can vaccinate your population and achieve immunity that way rather than uh, immunity through, um, um, through exposure to the disease itself. So, so vaccine, um, uh, I, I regret not mentioning it earlier, but it's, it is um, a fundamental part in thinking about how uh, each of these communities are making decisions about um, about their response and will play um, a really big role going forward. Um, the need for uh, a, an effective um, vaccine that can confer protection um, is uh, 
immense in those countries that have successfully crushed the curve and reduced community transmission. They're not getting out of this um, without either seeing virus spread in the population or uh, a, an effective vaccine that they can then provide to members of their community. The story isn't done yet. Right? We've got a ways to go um, for, for each of these populations. The fragmentation of the response in the United States is, is, is just a sordid tale. Uh, it reflects the abdication of responsibility by the federal government. Worse than abdication, I think there's, uh, there's just been um, a horrendous mistake after mistake um, and missed opportunity after missed opportunity. Um, there's been an absence of leadership uh, and in some ways a subversion of an appropriate response. Saying that the virus was just going to go away magically uh, you know, it was, was nonsense from the beginning, um, saying that, uh, you know, that, that we were, that we want to consider bleach. I mean, these are, uh, the advocacy for hydroxychloroquine, I mean, a lot of these things are, were uh, downright dangerous. And not supporting, not supporting states, um, uh, not taking a lead for a national response, in some ways seems, cowardly, right? I mean, it's not wanting to take on the responsibility of having, having to care for the entire population, throwing it onto someone else's shoulders, and then not lifting a finger to really support them mm -hmm. you know, with providing PPE uh, and providing sufficient disease tracking, making enough diagnostics. I mean, this has just been, I mean, it's, it's almost an incomprehensible failure uh, of the federal government's response. So we talked about testing early on in the pandemic. One of the issues with testing that came out was the CDC had tests that weren't, that were defective and that set us back. Have we resolved those issues and do we have enough testing capacity in the country now? No, no we don't. Uh, we, we, we don't have enough testing capacity at all. Uh, test turnaround times have been in the news a fair bit recently because they are just unacceptably long. Uh, useless. They're, they're basically rendered the tests useless. You need to, you know, if, if you want to make a decision as to whether someone should stay in isolation or move from quarantine to isolation, um, uh, or if you need to do contact tracing on potential contacts, you know, getting data seven days, 10 days later, uh, essentially it's way too late. So uh, you need rapid turnaround tests. Um, and you know, the, the Michael, Michael Minna, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, has been uh, very much a, a prominent and public in his uh, desperate pleas for the FDA to approve these cheap, uh, rapid um, uh, tests that, uh, even if they are of lower sensitivity, would be particularly useful for surveillance purposes and really just help us get to a point of being able to slow the spread of the virus, but it continues to be the case that we just don't have enough testing of any kind. Uh, you know, if we had had good uh, available um, testing uh, with rapid turnaround, uh, we, we, wouldn't, we would be nowhere near where we are right now. And the repercussions have been so dramatic. Uh, and we are still not at a point where we have the kind of testing we need. People need to be able to, if they want to test, they should be able to get a test and get an answer uh, very quickly. Uh, and for all those who are engaged in public health interventions, all the contact tracers and so on, they should be able to test people and retest them. Uh, and we just, we, we don't have the infrastructure and the capacity for it. 
Mm. And that's something that has been depleted over many years or that's, is that something yeah. we had the capacity to build up in January? Certainly it was something we could have done. Um, and, and we were set, um, set back pretty dramatically uh, by the CDC error, uh, where instead of using available tests, um, we, uh, you know, the CDC decided it wanted to make its own and sent it out, but it was, you know, it was a flawed test. Uh, and so there was a, basically we were behind by a month, which for this pandemic, uh, and the speed with which this virus spreads was just, uh, um, catastrophic. So, um, why did the CDC want to use its own tests instead uh, of... I don't know. Hmm. And why didn't it have the procedures in place, you know, to, to, if it's going to make something, to make sure that it's, uh, you know, made up the standards uh, and to, to, to ensure against this kind of error? There, I don't know either. Uh, it seems like some of that is, is uh, just uh, systems issues. Um, some of that may also well be attributed to the uh, you know, kind of regular, deep, limited funding supplied to the CDC or reductions in funding. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, how did this happen to begin with? And so based on that, you know, we're still looking for testing. There's some talk about a rapid, um, or you're, you're talking about your colleague is, uh, talking about these antigen tests is it the, yeah so, so the they're, antigens they're, are like it's like a less sensitive but quicker test so the idea is that you test more often and if you're testing more often you're going to catch more people yeah it's also that the idea that people are most infectious when the burden is high and that the sensitivity of the tests depend on um you know uh how much of the virus is around when there's a lot of the virus around the tests can pick it up. When there's less virus around, the tests are less likely to pick it up. But if people are really contagious, you can see that someone is in the stage when there is a lot of virus around, then, then you can uh, um, act on that information and you can interrupt spread. So even low sensitivity tests um, may be useful given the dynamics of viral loads uh, over the course of, course of infection and the relationship between those viral loads and infectiousness. So, um, so the, the hope is that even, you know, the, the rapid low sensitivity tests that are pretty cheap, um, and again, the technology exists, a number of companies actually have made these, getting those widespread may have uh, a great impact for surveillance purposes. And so if we can do that, um, say we get, you know, the rapid tests to enough places that we need them, I think, you know, as we look towards the fall, uh, we're talking about schools reopening, some universities reopening. Do you think schools reopening in person or hybrid is a good idea at this point? Um, and what do you see, how do you see this playing out through the fall if in fact schools do reopen and some in person, you know, people's economic necessity is gonna dictate that some parents send their kids back to school and. Uh, or back to daycare or have daycare provider come into their home or something. So how does, how do you see this playing out through the fall? Uh, I think it's really going to depend on where and what the community prevalence is. 
Um, so we saw what happened as a first indication in Israel, uh, where opening schools led to, again, another lockdown, right, as there started to be widespread disease. We saw what happened recently in Georgia, as schools opened and people didn't engage in masking or social distancing, uh, and there are outbreaks uh, and led to the school being shut down. So if you try to open without any mitigation measures, it goes back to this idea that the virus is going to spread where you have susceptible individuals and opportunity for the virus to spread. If there is very low prevalence or ideally, you know, there's no community transmission, then it seems like opening schools is reasonable. But where there is community transmission uh, and you are not able to engage in the various non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and distancing and, uh, you know, put people together in poorly ventilated spaces where, you know, the air isn't going through HEPA filters and, and so on, there will be opportunities for spread and we should expect there to be outbreaks. I think one of the other main concerns that I have is, uh, you know, I was talking about this with colleagues for the past couple of days, um, <coughs> The, there's a mass migration that's about to happen in the United States, and that is of college students going off uh, to universities in different places. You know, in, in the Boston area, uh, something like 170,000 undergraduates who normally descend on the, uh, the greater Boston area each, uh, each fall. Um, it's going to be a much smaller number because many universities are no longer holding in-person classes or told students not to come back. Uh, or have done some kind of uh, in-between model. You know, Harvard, for example, telling the freshmen to come, but only uh, upperclassmen would need to be on campus. So it's, they cut it back to something like 40% of the undergraduate population. But still, that's going to be people coming from around the country. Uh, and if you look at where there's a, a large fraction of uh, just the population in the U.S., that's Florida, Texas, California, places where the prevalence right now is pretty high. So we're going to see introductions of cases uh, into Massachusetts, a large influx all at once uh, in the last bit of August, beginning of September. That's going to happen. What is the impact then on community transmission? A lot of that depends on what colleges and universities are going to be doing in terms of testing and quarantining all of their incoming students. How many of them are going to live on campus? How many are going to live in apartments rented in um, in communities? Where are they going to get their food? Uh, how are they going to start interacting with communities? I think it's fair expectation that we're going to see more cases uh, over the next month. What impact is that going to have then on um, you know, all of the other schools, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools? Um, when you have an uptick in community transmission, boy, those schools are going to be at risk. As we move into the fall, uh, and, you know, there's less opportunities to hang out outdoors where uh, transmission is less likely to happen uh, because of good ventilation. Uh, you know, it, it then, you know, I worry we're going to see quite a bit more spread um, come, come the fall. So, uh, and, and moving into winter. So, I, I, um, you know, it's not just... Uh, school openings for community schools. It's really just the, this mass migration of students that happens with um, the, the beginning of, of the um, uh, college and university terms um, that I think we're going to uh, feel the impact of. Um, well, Dr. Grodd, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. 
thanks and nice to speak with you again, Brendan. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.